Okay, uh, so we're marching our way through the book of uh, Revelation this year. And um, we've reached chapter 6 this morning. And um, this chapter addresses important questions like, why is there such great evil in the world? And why so much hatred and conflict why so many natural disasters, so many diseases, so many tragedies? The, these are questions that uh, really trouble uh, many people. And uh, the scriptures have answers to these questions, at least some answers. And uh, in particular in our section today. So we're in chapter 6. As I said, we're going to cover the first eight verses. 6, 1 to 8. This is the word of God. Now I watched when the Lamb opened one of the seven seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, Come! And I looked, and behold, a white horse, and a rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal... I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come. And I looked and behold, a black horse and its rider had a pair, of, a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and water. I'm sorry, oil and wine. Then he opened the fourth seal, I'm sorry, when he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death, and Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. Now over the last two weeks we've been talking about this grand heavenly vision that John is given, including the drama of the scroll in the hand of the one who was on the throne, which was sealed with seven seals. And finally the introduction of the Lion of Judah, who turns out to be a lamb. Clearly it's Jesus. As the one who has the power and the ability to open the scroll and the seals that hold the scroll shut. And what follows in chapter 6 is a continued vision of the opening of the seven seals, which begins the unfolding of what is contained in the scroll, it seems. This doesn't mean that the worship 
that we saw in Revelation 4 and 5 has come to an end and now the trouble that we read about in these four horsemen is beginning. Clearly, the worship continues through the age, but while there's joy and worship in heaven, there's also trouble and chaos on the earth. But the order in which these things are given to us is not accidental. Only after the concept of the reign of God and his victory is well established are we then shown the troubled waters of the world, which might, in the eyes of some, seem to conflict with the calm, peaceful triumph of God in Revelation 4 and 5. Now, chapter 6 of Revelation talks about the first six of the seven seals and their opening. The first four are rather brief and they are belong together in a clump. So those are the ones we're going to cover today. And then uh, next sermon we'll talk about the fifth seal and the following sermon we'll talk about the sixth seal. There's no reason to think that these seals happen one at a time. Like, you know, the thing that is unleashed in the first seal happens, finishes, and then the second seal, the things it reveals are happen and are finished, and then the third. They all seem to be things that are happening simultaneously. And uh, as to the why we think that, the the reasons are in the notes, but I'm not going to take the time to explain it this morning. So, these four horsemen of the apocalypse in Revelation 6, 1 to 8, describe the destructive forces unleashed upon the world from the time of Christ and his suffering on the cross to the glorious day of his return. So let's talk about each one of the four horsemen just briefly. The first horseman seems to depict military conquest, empire building, nation rising against nation, and kingdom against kingdom. Verse 2, a white horse and its rider had a bow. And a crown was given to him, and he came out conquering and to conquer. The biggest question about this first horseman has to do with his identity. Some people connect him with Christ because there are certain things that resemble a vision of Jesus in Revelation 19 in the description of this first rider. Both ride on a white horse. Both have crowns on their head, and both conquer. There are reasonable people on both sides of the issue. And from my perspective, it doesn't make an enormous amount of difference in the long run, in the big picture. But along with many others, I think that this first horseman is not Jesus. Jesus. 
And again, those, the reasons for that, I've listed three reasons. There's more actually, but I've listed three in the notes that you could refer to if you wish. The second horseman depicts bloodshed. Verses 3 and 4. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come, and out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another, and he was given a great sword. The red color of this horse seems to correspond to the bloodshed that is initiated by the rider. Its rider is said to be permitted to take peace from the earth, causing war and conflict and murder and class warfare and riots and terrorism, all the things which we know well bring bloodshed. But at the end of the first century, if a believer were to hear about people slaying one another, they would no doubt think also of the many believers who had been slaughtered for their faith. And think of what Jesus said in Matthew 10, 34. Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace but a sword. And notice that though this rider is given a large sword, he is not said to kill anyone. Men kill one another. The horseman takes peace away and then man proceeds to commit the bloodshed one to another. And of course the study of history proves that the second horseman has been very successful. In many ways, red is the color of humanity and the history of mankind. The third horseman seems to depict famine. When he opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse. And its rider had a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, A quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. Now in the ancient world, when food became scarce, it was distributed by rationed amounts using scales. And so scales represent famine. Not only do scales suggest that food was scarce, but also that it could be purchased only at greatly inflated prices. The denarius that's referred to here was a Roman coin equivalent to the daily wage of a working man, as we read in Matthew 20, verse 2. So for a day's work, man could buy enough wheat for himself for one day to eat. Or enough of the less nutritious barley for himself and his family or a few others to eat and survive another day. 
This is probably 10 to 12 times the normal price for these grains. As with the previous two woes, famine here affects all people, but Christians also are definitely in mind. One of the most common forms of persecution is economic persecution, whereby those who will not bow to the society's gods aren't allowed much access to the basic necessities of life. It's possible this is also what harm the wine or the oil and wine refers to as well. The old Geneva Bible suggests that it might mean, and this everyone, their only guess is about what that part of the verse means. And their guess is that it refers to overcharging for the oil and wine, also referring to economic persecution. The fourth horseman depicts death. When he opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come, and I looked, and behold, a pale horse. Now, that doesn't actually mean pale. It's a color that we don't have a word for. But it probably was designed to reflect the color of a corpse. And its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. So following, uh, so we have this very, you know, the color and the, and the fact that his name is death and the Hades follows him clearly depicts death here. But then, following this description of the fourth horseman, seems to be a summary statement referring to all of the horsemen when it says they were given authority over a fourth of the earth. Up to this point, the writers have been referred to as he, he, he. But now it's they, seemingly to refer to all of them together, are given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. So the fourth horseman seems to sort of summarize all the horsemen as ain't agents of death. Though it does does add two new causes of death that haven't been mentioned by the previous three, that is pestilence, which is plague, disease, and death by wild beasts. And though it seems may seem strange to our ears, when we're talking about causes of death, to include death by wild beasts, we must remember that for the first century Christian, Martyrdom often occurred by means of wild beasts. One of the reasons it's important to remember in each of these that the persecution and martyrdom of believers is part of what is in mind in the passage is that the fifth seal, the one we're going to talk about next, is about Christian martyrs, that is, Christians killed for their faith, crying out to God for vengeance. And these four horsemen seem to lead us to the fifth horseman, which is that what I just referred to. 
So here we have these descriptions of the four horsemen. And in them we're given a picture of the severe afflictions even now being brought upon our world. And you don't have to delve very deeply into the news or very deeply into history books to see that it's a rather accurate portrayal. But the most important thing that we're to see here is that even though it may seem like this bloodshed and turmoil is at cross purposes with God who is on his throne. Ultimately, it is God himself who is bringing it all to pass. This is not only stated in our passage, it is emphasized. It is the lamb who opens each seal. It is the angelic beings who call forth each horseman. It is God who gives the authority to each one to do the job. And not only that, but the command with a voice like thunder reminds us of what we saw earlier in chapter 4 verse 5 where coming out of the throne in the description of God is lightning and thunder so these commands are coming right from God this is also seen in the fourth horseman's name death and the fact that Hades follows him. Just a few chapters earlier, you remember in 118 in this vision that John had of Jesus, Jesus is said to have the keys of death and Hades. So now it seems it is through these horsemen that Jesus is indeed subjecting many to death and even ultimately to Hades. So here we see very clearly that the book of Revelation is not G-rated. It contains disturbing images. Why is this? Well, the world is not G-rated and many things God does are not G-rated. The book of Revelation itself is mixed there's a mingling of beautiful and wonderful things along with ghastly and terrifying things. Let's just review what we've covered so far in light of this. We're introduced to Jesus in Revelation 1. Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of the earth, who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and has made us a kingdom, priests of God, to his, uh, priests to his God and Father, who is coming with the clouds and to whom will be glory and dominion forever and ever. And this one we're introduced is saying, fear not. I am the first and the last and the living one. I died and behold I'm alive forevermore and I have the keys of death and Hades. And he's standing among his churches helping them fixing them by means of his word. All that is good and happy news. But then in chapter 2 and 3 we see that some of the churches are a hot mess. And that most of them are having major problems. And even the ones which seem to be doing well are experiencing severe persecution. That's bad news. 
And then in the vision of 4 and 5, chapters 4 and 5, we see the heavenly scene where God is on his throne and the Lamb is able to open the seven seals which are preventing the scroll from being opened. Those two chapters are very happy and joyful, though somewhat daunting. But then again comes the seven seals. And the first four are pretty brutal. Telling us that the world we live in is full of death and bloodshed and famine and oppression and disease. But that doesn't just mean the world far away. It means us, our lives, our world. Sometimes we ourselves are affected by these things. And this may seem horrifying, but it's just the beginning of much of this kind of stuff in the book of Revelation. But there's also good news in this passage about the bad news. It's good that the terrible things are tempered. The famine is not total starvation. It's, it's expensive but it's not that everybody's dying. And the destruction is just a quarter of the people, not everyone. And even better news, God is in control, even when terrible things are happening. But it is still hard news, hard that life is hard. Great forces of evil have been inflicted on our world. Much to our uh, regret, we are not, as Isaac Watts said in the hymn, Am I a Soldier of the Cross? We are not carried to the skies on flowery beds of ease. But this isn't really new, is it? We didn't have to wait to the last book of the Bible to find this out. In fact, what we've read in Revelation so far seems to just about perfectly match the envision uh, in, in version what Jesus said in John 16, 33. In this world you will have per tribulation. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. These passages are important for us because we need to see that the true God of the Bible is not a safe God. He is not playing games. He means business. People can complain all they want. They can accuse God of being unloving all they want. But he is who he is. And he is a holy God. And he is going to act justly no matter what anyone else thinks. So what is God up to? What's his agenda in all this? It's certainly not to make mankind as happy as possible. Why would he allow the world to be such a brutal and scary place? Well, maybe man's greatest need is not to be assured and pleasured, but to be humbled and woken up 
Now, man doesn't think he's the problem, of course. If anything, he thinks God's the problem. We see this even from the Garden of Eden, where Adam and Eve were deceived into thinking that their loving God was actually depriving them. And people have been blaming God ever since, even from then. It was this woman that you gave me. She ate. Jesus talked about this in Luke chapter 13. And what he said, I think, is helpful for us to understand the issues that are raised by Revelation 6 and the description of these four horsemen. You see, two terrible things had just happened in that area. And everyone was talking about them, apparently. First of all, Pontius Pilate had some Galilean Jews brutally killed, either near the temple or in the temple. And then he had their blood mixed with the blood of the sacrifices, abusing the corpses and desecrating the temple. The second thing that had happened was that somehow, either in a tornado or earthquake or just poor engineering, a great tower in Siloam had collapsed and 18 people had been killed. And when someone brought this to the attention of Jesus, he used the occasion to challenge the way people think about things like this. Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the tower in Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So when injustices and tragedies occur, how should we think about it? Of course, we should all be sad and compassionate and to help those who are afflicted to the best of our ability. But God, but Jesus tells us it should also make us think about our sin and about God. Now, there's nothing wrong with working hard to try to make sure buildings don't collapse. And to make sure that leaders don't act ruthlessly. But clearly in the mind of Jesus, this kind of thing is not the big problem in the world. The big problem in the world is that people don't yield to God and worship him. Catastrophes and injustices will happen no matter how hard the engineers work or what laws are passed because of sin and God's curse upon the world in response to sin. And this curse is progressive as we see in the story of the Tower of Babel where God made people speak different languages. He added uh, another aspect of the curse on to the ones that they already were experiencing. If the curse wasn't progressive, if we could cure all the diseases and none more would crop up, if we could build earthquake and hurricane-proof buildings and they stopped, so earthquakes stopped causing devastation and hurricanes as well, if we could stop all the wars and solve the problems at the negotiating table, 
if we could have full enjoyment, I'm sorry, full employment and eliminate poverty, what would happen? We would only glory in ourselves and forget about God. It is no wonder that God allows havoc to be wreaked on the earth if his number one concern is the fact that people are rebelling against him and not worshiping him. Or perhaps we're hard-hearted enough that when tragedies happen, we think, oh, God is punishing those wicked people in Turkey and Syria. Do we think that these people in Turkey and Syria were worse sinners than we are because they suffered in this way? To paraphrase Jesus. But unless you repent, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Is Jesus saying that if we repent, we won't be killed by tyrants or by falling towers? I don't think so. I think he's saying that if we repent, that is, if we come to him and yield to him, then all the evil of afflictions is removed from us. The afflictions may still come, but the evil part of it is gone. That is, there's no harm done to us. Even if we die, it is a good thing because God is using it for our good. We see in all this that God takes human sin and rebellion far more seriously than we do. And he takes what happens to people after they die much more serious than most of us do. He knows that people need to be woken up. We need to be shaken. Our attention needs to be arrested. The world can't imagine anything better than earthly comfort and success and longevity. So that's what they think love would mean if there was really a God of love in charge of everything. 32 years ago this month, we had a house fire. And our six kids had just fallen asleep. We had been out and we came home late in the evening, put them to bed. And about an hour later, they were deeply in sleep. As you, you know, all of you who have little kids, you know well what your kids are like when they're really deeply in sleep. And it was very difficult for us to wake them up to get them out of the house. But we couldn't carry six kids out of the house. And so we had to wake them up, no matter how hard it was, and get them to walk themselves, which wasn't easy because not only do they have to go downstairs, but then they have to go outside in 10 degree weather with bare feet and walk on gravel. And it took quite a bit to get them to do that. But would it not have been supremely unloving for us to just let them sleep? That's what they wanted. They just wanted to be let alone. Let me sleep. Now, of course, now as adults, they all understand. But at the time, they did not interpret our efforts to wake them up as love. And so often, mankind does not interpret God's attempts to wake us up 
as love. But he knows the end. He knows what's coming. He knows the danger that we are in. And how desperately we need to wake up. The fact is there's another world coming. And God wants to prepare us for that world. And he cares infinitely for his people. He knows we need tribulation. He knows we need opposition and tribulation. I said tribulation twice, I'm sorry. He knows we need to be disturbed. He knows we need to be woken up. And so, when trouble comes to the world, Christians suffer alongside the wicked. But for us, these afflictions don't represent judgment for our wickedness. They are agents of his love for our sanctification and perfection and purification. For all things work together for good, for those who love him and are called according to his purposes. We think that what's wrong with our lives is that our problems are too big. But really what's wrong with our lives is that our God is too small. And we're asleep toward him. Every married couple, and many others as well, knows what it's like to be talking to someone who's acting like they're listening, but they're not really listening. That's the way we are with God. And God knows that taking him lightly and giving him only a small amount of our attention is stupid and foolhardy and dangerous. And so for believers, whether we feel it or not, our afflictions are needed and for our good. The Lamb is allowing forces of evil to wreak havoc on the earth, but those same instruments are medicinal and redemptive and constructive for his beloved ones and for those that he's calling to himself. And he gives his people the help they need to conquer in the midst of their long and grueling journey. Now the world doesn't need us to tell them about the existence of war and famines and plagues and conflicts. But the world does need us to tell them that these things are not just meaningless accidents. They do need us to tell them that despite the chaos and confusion of the world, there is an ordered plan which cannot be thwarted and is being fulfilled. They do need us to tell them that suffering does not occur randomly or by chance, but that Christ is sitting on his throne in control of all for redemptive as well as judicial purposes. And all that and that the same one who came 
to give himself as a sacrificial lamb is the one who orders all things on the earth in love. Now most of them will be angry or they will scoff at us to hear about God being in control of these things but there are a few who will be intrigued and eventually won to Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. And we must not be silent out of fear of being mocked because those who are the chosen of God need to hear and God will take care of their hearts. Let us pray together. Lord Jesus Christ, we stand in awe of you. You are such a great Savior and a great Redeemer. Forgive us for how lightly we take you. Forgive us for how casual we are about you. Oh Lord, forgive us for how we take so many things seriously that are not big things. And yet the biggest thing of all we often neglect. Please help us. Please help us, Lord, to be mindful of you at all times. To work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And to be agents of your glorious truth in this world, which is experiencing this tumult that we read about in Revelation 6 every day and point them to you, the Lamb who was slain for the sins of his people. And now, Lord, it is our great joy to come to the table that Christ has set by which he offers his body and his blood to his people to strengthen them, to secure them, to draw near to them, and to help them to celebrate all that has been done. Be with us and allow us, O oh Lord, to draw near to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.